Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Well, my guest today is none other than uh, Adrian Goldsworthy. Thank you so much for coming, sir. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for inviting me. So you have written several books. Um, what we're going to talk about the Roman army today, which is quite fascinating in itself. And what what made you write the book about the Roman army? I grew up in South Wales, the western part of Britain, and about I suppose 30 or 40 kilometers away is Caerleon, which was the site of the fortress of Legia Second Augusta. And nearby that's Kai went. And as a, as a kid, I was always pestering my parents to take me there. And it, because you could climb over the amphitheater and the barrack blocks where the soldiers had lived, it made Roman history very real to me in a way that Greek history, Egyptian history, however interesting, they hadn't come here. This was my history, it was local. So uh, all history fascinates me. I go anywhere and I'm off wanting to read about whatever happened there. Mm. Um, but the Romans, there's always, there's been something about them from the, that sparked the imagination. So it, it's, that enthusiasm is still there all these decades later. So um, it's, it's, and the more you look at it, the more you realize, the more questions you want to ask. And, oh, yeah. And, so, and there's always more to discover. I'm sure we haven't discovered half of it yet. Oh, certainly. And there's, there's lots we'll never know as well, but it's, it's guessing is quite interesting. So... It's, um, it's well known that the Roman army were efficient, super efficient of its time. And what, what made the Roman army so superior of its time? You have to remember the Roman army is around for a very, very long period of history. I mean, there is the, the settlement of Rome in the 8th century BC, which is probably near enough to the, something happens near enough to the, the mythical date of its foundation. And they have an army and they fight wars. But even in the, the beginning of the fourth century BC, they'll fight a 10 year war with Vei, which is only you know, 10 kilometers away. It's, it's, it's very far. You can walk there in less than a day. And yet that's the scale of things. So in those days, there isn't anything that special about the Romans. They're a lot like lots of other city states in Italy in particular, but more generally in the Mediterranean world. You get the development. The, the big difference with the Romans is that as they expand, they turn other people into Romans. You don't just stay as a province or as an empire or as another Italian city, they make you Roman. And one of the main obligations of being a Roman is to serve in the army. So the Roman army gets bigger and bigger and it it outstrips tenfold at the very least any of the other citizen armies of the ancient world, of, you know, say the Greek states like Athens or Sparta, there are just more of these Romans and their allies. That allows them to fight war in a different way. And then as they emerge onto the wider Mediterranean scene, they get the shock of their life when Hannibal inflicts such appalling losses on them, but they can cope. You start to develop in that period and before a more sophisticated approach to warfare. But it's really only in the first century BC and then through into the imperial period when you end up with a a professional army that's taken some of that experience, but is more permanent. And it has the capacity to train not just soldiers, but officers. It preserves the things it's learned. Whereas a lot of armies in the past, they could become very good, but as soon as they're disbanded, you've got to start again. Mm. So it's much easier. And it's it's that organization, it's that willingness to make mistakes and learn from them, but then remember them and try not to make the same mistake again to copy your opponents. If they have a good tactic, if they have good weaponry, you copy that and you make more of them. So there's that combination with an extreme stubbornness and determination, the way the Romans fight. The Romans don't give in. Any other state would have given in when Hannibal had slaughtered a succession of Roman armies. Now, when you think within the first three campaigns, 
a third of the Senate, the ruling body of the Roman state, is dead, killed on the battlefield. Maybe a quarter of your military age adult male population is dead or captured. No other state could cope with those sorts of losses. They would give in at that point, but the Romans don't. So they combine this increasing military sophistication with a, a sheer unwillingness to back down, an unwillingness to give in that makes them at the higher level very, very hard to beat. And eventually they're so, so big as a state, there's for cent many centuries, there is no one outside with the power to push them over. And they have this military that's more sophisticated than anyone else. So underlying that's the state. It's also the economy that you can afford to have people who are specialist soldiers. And by the second century AD, you can have on paper 350,000 of them. You know, no other state until the modern era has armies on that scale. The Romans could afford it, but it does cost money because they have to be, that's all they do for 25 years of their life, they're in the army. Was it unique for the time that to turn conquered areas into Romans or was it into, the, into their some sort of part of their empire, or was this was this a new thing? It's very unusual. Citizenship is vitally important in the ancient world, particularly in the Greek world. But it, as far as we can see, it's true also of Carthaginian culture and um, even really in large parts of Spain, Gaul, elsewhere. There are these developing city states. Most of them are extremely reluctant to take in outsiders and make them citizens. The Romans from early on, you know, when you think even their traditions, the, the, the stories they tell about the foundation of Rome is that Romulus gathers the vagrants, the outcasts, the criminals of all of Italy to form his new society and his new city. And there are stories of people like the Claudii, this big aristocratic family that bring in lots of foreigners from outside, but they become Romans. And when you free a, free a slave in Rome, he becomes Roman. So it's relatively easy when you're fighting neighbors in Italy who speak the same language as you or much like you to absorb them. The trick is when they go even further afield and they start to not just set down colonies, but they start giving citizenship to the locals to the point where you will eventually have emperors coming from families that are Spanish, North African. Uh, like Hadrian. Yeah, exactly. Um, and one of the mechanisms of all this is, of course, the, the army, which from Augustus's reforms onwards, you have half your army are auxiliary soldiers, non-Roman citizens. Mm. But at the end of their 25 years, if they get that far, they get awarded citizenship. So you're starting to give this out to people who are from you know, the tribes of Gaul or Germany or Syria, wherever it might be. You know, a classic example really is St. Paul from the, the New Testament, who is a, a Jew from Tarsus, as far as we can tell, doesn't speak Latin. You know, he, he's fluent in Greek. That's the language of communication in the Eastern Mediterranean. This man's a Roman citizen. And in all legal respects, exactly the same as any other Roman citizen elsewhere. And there hasn't really been a state, and particularly an empire like this in history. It's almost the sort of reverse of the American dream where everybody comes to America and gets absorbed in the melting pot and becomes American. That's the, the theory. But the Romans go out and do that. And it doesn't, you know, your ethnicity doesn't matter. The gods you worship, the language you speak at home doesn't matter as long as in public you follow the rules that the Romans want. So it's, and the army's part of this but it also like a lot of these things you can't really decide where one thing starts and the other ends because the army is able to be so big and so highly motivated because you're you have this broad base of citizens and you're you're willing to give the benefits of winning your wars beyond just your ordinary citizens and your you know your sort of your key population so there is something very odd and unusual about the romans and no no other state has quite done this in the same way so now I remember, if I remember correctly, is uh, in the at least in the early days, and, and there was an emperor. I don't remember his name, so forgive me for that. But that in the early days, the, you had to be rich to run join the army. Is that correct? During Caesar's time, I think. It's up up until Caesar's time, I mean, it's it starts to change the end of the second century BC into the early first century BC. But the tradition, it's the same as that of the Greek city states. Because you're a citizen, you get to vote. But because of that, you're also obliged to serve the army, or serve in the army to fight for your city and protect it and protects it, its interests and its rights. 
Now, in order to do that, you have to have enough money to equip yourself and enough time to train yourself as well, because the army will enlist you and then it will you know, go through some rapid training. But the idea is you turn up with your own sword, your own armor, your own helmet, your own shield, and then you drill and you practice with all the men you've been, who've been put in the same century and maniple as you, which means that it takes a while for a Roman army of this period to become very good, but they are highly motivated. These are people who feel they have a stake in what's happening. And again, you can draw the parallel with Hannibal that when Hannibal is marching around Italy, burning down villages and farms, the soldiers fighting him are the farmers. Mm. They are the people who are thinking that might be mine, maybe it is mine, it certainly could be. So there's a very strong incentive. The problems start to come as the, the Roman Republic, as it is then, gains provinces in Spain, in Macedonia, and needs to garrison them. You know, it's fine to go off for the summer and go and fight a campaign in Italy, but to be sent off to Spain for 10 years in a garrison you're not hugely wealthy. You're someone who's got a small farm. Your family's depending on you. During that time, you can't work it. There's a fair chance your farm's going to go under and fail. So you start to get a little bit of reluctance to serve in a way that they've never had before. And then some reforms, they start changing the age limits for service. They eventually start in the second century BC. The state provides soldiers with clothing as a matter of routine. Whereas in the past, again, you wore your own tunic, your own boots. Um, so the state's starting to take on elements of supply. And then famously, Marius at um, the late second century BC appeals to a group known as the Capiti Kensi, the, the people who in the census were only counted by their heads, basically, and their names, because they didn't own any property. So they have very minimal voting rights. They're, they're less influential. They're dirt poor, essentially. But you take them in the army, you give them weapons, you give them equipment, and maybe if they serve well, you'll also give them a farm or reward at the end of it. So you're changing from being an army of property owners to those who are ambitious to have that or just so desperate they don't have any other work. And this will be the, the pattern. Eventually, you know, you have the sense the Emperor Tiberius will complain that particularly in Italy, only vagrants and criminals are joining the army because everybody else is so prosperous has better options open to them. And there is a move away so that recruitment moves more and more towards the fringes of the empire, the very prosperous areas. There are lots of other opportunities. Therefore, you don't go and sign up for 25 years off in the army yeah. in a pretty brutal discipline. So it does change. And the soldiers eventually, once you, you know, you can read Tacitus' account of the civil war after Nero's death, by then soldiers are almost seen as, as barbarian outsiders to particularly the wealthy of Italy. They're, they're people you treat with suspicion. You're not sure because they might, they are willing to fight a civil war. And of course, the, the Roman Republic dies in a spate of civil wars. Augustus will become the first emperor through winning the last one. And later on, from the third century onwards, you will have this frequent civil war as the army fights against parts of itself. You know, Roman soldier kills Roman soldier with a willingness that is, again, also quite rare in history. And the army where, where one of those who decided that he should be a true emperor, right? Yeah, they have a very mean, huge, huge say in this. Yes, it, it's again a Tacitus quote the secret of empire was that emperors were made in the provinces. If the army backed you and enough of the army did, or that, that section of the army that supports you defeats anyone else, then you become emperor. And it really doesn't matter what the Senate thinks or what the Senate likes. Um, and nearly all, you know, the emperors who tend to get overthrown or assassinated, it's nearly always, often by the Praetorian Guard, their own bodyguard in Rome, or it's by provincial armies. The senators don't have a very good record of assassinating emperors. They try quite often, they're accused of trying, but they're not very good at it. Yeah. It's usually the soldiers that seem to do the job. So, uh, what, what did it take? So what, was it common for people to get a piece of farm or land if you were a soldier after service? It depends on the period. It, it's easier for that to happen when there's been a lot of expansion and there's lots of new territory. So it's common with people like Caesar and then Augustus. Um, it gets less common as the first century develops because you've already set up these colonies. There are relatively few conquests. There are exceptions when the Emperor Trajan conquers Dacia, early second century BC. There's a colony founded there as its capital that brings in 
a lot of population from a wide area, but many former soldiers. Um, at other periods, you get a, a, a sum of money, basically, a sort of a bonus when you've left. And that's to allow you to set yourself up because it depends. I mean, in the early days, it's interesting. We, we tend to think of this long service, sort of 20, 25 years in the army, that coming in quite early. In Caesar's day, it's clearly not the case. And men are maybe serving for five, seven years. We're not quite sure because Augustus can raise legions from Caesar's veterans who've been settled on colonies and farms in Italy. These men are still young enough to be very effective fighting soldiers. So they're not men in their 50s and beyond as they might be later on. So there are patterns we sometimes, in the same way in that period, soldiers could marry. It's, it's probably Augustus who brings in the ban on soldiers contracting a legal marriage that isn't really changed in any substantial way until the early third century with Septimius Severus. And again, isolates them. Clearly the soldiers do have families and in many cases they're living in the barrack blocks in forts, but the state's basically saying, we're not going to provide for them. You're not going to get any extra pay. You're not going to get any allowances. If you die, they're not getting a pension. So, um, you know, it, it's part of this. It's one of those things where the army clearly doesn't stop them, but it just says, yeah, we're not, we're not looking after them. Yeah. So it's clear that the Roman army were superior, but did people try to copy the Roman army? And if so why, why did they fail in doing so? so? Like a lot of things, you need much of the infrastructure that underlies it. You do get um, armies that, that copy Roman equipment, just as the Romans have copied so much of their equipment from others. And you have people like the, the Seleucids, some of the kingdoms of Asia Minor in the second century BC, start raising some units of troops that look a bit like legionaries and have similar sort of shape, shaped shields, um, equipment. Others do it as well. The Galatians do it. They form um, two legions that will eventually form the basis of Legio 22 Deatara in the Roman army. So they're considered good enough recruits. But when they first see service, they're not very experienced and they do run away in battle. It, <clears throat> it's one of those things you have to remember. It's, there's more to the legion than simply the technology or even the tactics. There is also generations of confidence that you believe you're Roman, you're always going to win. And it's a little bit like the Spartans in ancient Greece. Every now and again, they come up against someone who's willing to fight and they don't always win, but they expect to. They don't give in easily. And everyone also, the other side knows that. There's, there's that element where if you're up against the Romans and you know anything about them, you're starting to think, yeah, this probably isn't going to go well. So there are experiments, the Numidians do the same, but None of them can form as many troops as the Romans can. And some of the best um, people to train them, to lead them, will be Romans or Roman deserters. And um, that's, a, you know, there are limited supply. And in the end, the Romans tend to just overwhelm you, but also you keep getting it. I mean, desertion is always a problem. The Dacian king Decebalus, as part of the treaties that are imposed on him, he's supposed to send back all the Roman soldiers he's enlisting, and he's clearly paying high bounties to get soldiers to drill his army, uh, men to operate artillery, teach him about siege craft fortification. So it does happen, and people will copy them, and they can learn quite quickly. You know, if you read Josephus' account of the Jewish rebellion under Nero, how quickly in the siege of Jerusalem, through practicing with the artillery they've captured from the Roman garrison, the rebels get more and more accurate. Because again, it's the easiest way to learn in a sense. It takes time, but you do pick things up. So people try, but it's very hard in the same way the Romans can't and just copy Parthian tactics immediately. Um, there are lots of factors and in the end, the Roman army relies, you know, we see all these forts, these bases dotted all around the empire. That speaks of all the money, the system that supports it, that supports the training, that makes sure you have good stables so that your horses are kept in good condition. There are conditions, there are training grounds, there are parade grounds for your men to drill in peacetime. It's, it's the, you know, the, the old Josephus thing is that the Romans are constantly preparing for war and that's an exaggeration. But it, it's there's far more to this success than simply the tactics and the weapons. 
So, uh, what happened? What happened if a slave entered the Roman army, and what happened to those who recruited? Because I remember reading something about, it and it was not received very well, if I remember correctly. So, what happened to a slave if a it's, slave ent entered the Roman army, and what was this? So, wasn't it just? Wouldn't it be good for, in a way because they would have more soldiers? That's the balance. But on the other hand, this is a, a slave owning society and slaves play such an important role in the economy. And the Romans, in a sense, didn't want the slaves to realize just how many of them there were or let them get organized. So the only way, if you're a slave who's been freed, then you are permitted to join the fleet. But everything else is banned to you. And we have an interesting letter from Pliny, who's governing Bithynia, sort of northern Turkey today under Trajan, early second century AD, where he's discovered a couple of slaves who've been enlisted with a group of recruits. And Trajan's answer is quite interesting. He says, well, it depends how these men got here. If they volunteered, then that's against the law, you're gonna to have to execute them. If somebody brought them forward to provide the quota that that community was obliged to um, provide, then it's their fault, not the slaves fault, because the slaves didn't have any choice in this. And if someone has, basically their, their son or someone else has joined the army and they've bought replacements, they've said, no, let him free, you take these two instead, then it's the fault of the person who made the replacement. So it, it was a serious thing. The Romans didn't, you know, they were terrified by Spartacus and that memory of what a slave army could do. And it's, it's slavery is something that even philosophers don't really question in the ancient world. They just assume it's normal. Because again, it doesn't really, have, for, the, for the Romans, it doesn't have a racial basis. Anybody could become a slave through debt or being captured in war. There's even a situation where if Romans are captured by the enemy, then if it's in a proper war that's properly declared, then they're prisoners of war. When they return to Roman society, that's fine. However, if they've been captured by raiders, then that counts as bandits and they have to go through a process to regain their, their franchise because that's that's how a lot of slaves happen. They simply get captured by someone. So the, there, are, there are distinctions within the law as to how all these things work, but it, it's reflective, you know, this is a very different society to anything we would recognize. And for them, it's, it's critical, it's almost more important not to have um, such men, so many soldiers but you don't want to challenge society. You don't want to challenge the hierarchy of things. So you spoke briefly about this, but how can you walk through the process of how did training, how was training like, and why, how did you rise in the ranks of a Roman army? Was there a way to pay for to rise in the ranks or do you have to train and go, go in the battlefield? Just need to plug myself in. Yeah, no worries. Um, again, it depends on the period. You have to remember that the senior officers at any period always come from the elite of society. Mm. Up until the third century AD, they're nearly all senators. So they're aristocrats of that level. And when you think there are rarely more than 600 members of the Senate, so that you have about 30 of these in charge of legions, about similar number in charge of provinces, about 30 as tribune, Quite a few of these people are at any one time in the Roman army. It, it's a major demand on, on their lives. And they're senators because they've been enrolled in the Senate, they need a minimum property qualification, which is considerable, um, and they're having a political career. And it's this throwback to the tradition that the Republic went to war, everybody went to war, and you voted for the people who would be your leaders in peace, but your commanders in war. That lasts for quite a long time. At lower levels, it's, it's less clear. You have Augustus and the other emperors will increase the involvement of what we'll call the equites or the knights, the, the social class just below the Senate. And there are far more of these. There are eventually tens of thousands of, of people like this. And they will, from the third century on, to rather take over military command and, and start to um, take over the jobs that previously had been, been performed by the Senate. So at that very high level, it's largely a, a social thing. You needed to be of a certain level of property, social status, political status to get that. On the other hand, the army itself is open to everyone. If the legions who, you know, you've got to be a citizen, 
it's quite clear that if you are well-educated, if you have good connections, you get much swifter promotion. There is an ongoing debate, um, and I'm, I have a minority view in this that I think most scholars think differently. The traditional view was that the centurions, who are the, the sort of the backbone of the professional army, are nearly all men who've served for 10, 12, even 15 years as an ordinary soldier before they become a centurion. I don't actually see the evidence for that. I think it's the other way around. And while there are some men who climb that ladder, who manage to make that break, they are the exceptions. And that's why they tell us on tombstones they set up or have set up after their death or on altars that they, you know, it's a big achievement. It's something to boast about. The vast majority of centurions don't tell us any anything about what happened to them before they filled that rank. So whether they were in the army or not before, whether a small minority, a similar number to the men who've definitely been promoted from the ranks are directly made centurions from civilian life. And um, you know, there's an interesting story that the, the future emperor Pertinax tried to get a commission as a centurion in the legions whilst he was a school teacher, gets turned down. Eventually he gets a better patron who manages to get him an equestrian command, um, which is actually in some ways you would think more prestigious, but that's, it's all to do with connections. If you read Julius Caesar's accounts of his campaigns in Gaul, he emphasizes the role of the centurions immensely. And that's, that's partly because these are politically important as well. So I think they're far more representative of a sort of local aristocracy from the smaller towns. You know, they're not, they're not senators. They're not from the very top of society, but they're somewhere in the middle because they required a lot of education. They had to be highly literate. This is an army that is keeping rec written records of everything. You will find centurions will be sent as ambassadors to Parthia. You know, they, they get really important jobs. So the idea that they're just someone who's sort of fought his way up because he's he's bigger and tougher and meaner than anybody else in the ranks. Sometimes yes, but on the whole not. Now, one of the, the ironies of, of the Roman army is that the first real mention we get of a process of training, one of the, the few. In the old days, the idea was you turned up in the army with your own equipment and you knew they had some idea of how to use it, and then they would drill you as a formation. And some of the best generals still taught people other things or got them to practice, but nevertheless, there was this idea that you were already made as a legionary. When they start recruiting from people outside that social group, a general called Rutilius Rufus copies the techniques of the gladiatorial schools and introduces those to the legions, and it looks as if that's what sticks for several centuries at least. And Vegetius writing around about AD 400 will describe this and some of it's about basic drill being taught to march, being taught then the military step that you all have the same length pace, moving in formation and then weapons drill where you train against a post, a six foot high or two meter high post as a target, wooden block. And you use a wooden sword and a wickerwork shield both of which are heavier than the real thing. So it's about muscle training, as well as practicing different moves, different cuts, different thrusts, different... Remember the shield is a, an offensive, aggressive weapon, as well as protection, because it's heavy and all the weight is concentrated by a dome-like boss that you use to punch your opponent and knock him down. And bear in mind, shield's on your left, so it's that side you can get all your weight behind rather than the sword. It's not like a fencer, where a fencer will have right side towards a, the opponent. The Romans, it's the other way around. It's the shield you do the battering with, and you it, it still protects you, and then you're thrusting as much as you can, or um, slashing with your sword, depending on the type of sword, the type of situation. So there is a great emphasis on physical fitness, physical strength, but also weapon skill. We don't have a lot of the details. We get a description of training and drill for cavalry, um, in the second century written by Arian that talks about throwing javelins, this sort of thing, using your shield to protect against missiles thrown at you, formations a little bit. We don't have anything quite as detailed for the infantry. We know they're doing it, but again, it's one of these things where if anybody wrote it down, those manuals haven't survived. And a lot of this may have been, again, because it's a professional army, there's someone who's learned from the last people before they retired, who can treat you this and train you with this. And that's it's one of the reasons when the empire falls that 
all this knowledge is lost yeah. because as soon as you have a break, there's no one to train the next generation. There's no one to teach you the secrets of how you do this. Is that's what, so that's why the Byzantine army weren't as efficient as the Roman army. It, it's different. I mean, you, you can make a case either way. Again, we, it's, we get more detailed manuals like the Strategicon um, of the Emperor Morris um, that tells you a lot more about formations. The impression is that army could be every bit as good as the army had ever been. It's just that it doesn't always have the infrastructure behind it. And it fights a different sort of war. You know, the emphasis becomes more and more on cavalry rather than infantry, because your infantry are mostly sitting in garrisons to defend them. And again, you can argue that there's a difference if you look at the, the campaigns of, of Belisarius in the sixth century and Narses, the, the eunuch general, Narses and some others make more use of infantry, though they sometimes, the infantry they're using are dismounted cavalrymen because their morale's higher. Belisarius is very much a cavalry general and he will use infantry, but the main um, tactical moves, the most important attacks, the most important maneuvers in the battle are done by, by cavalry. And that's in part, you're fighting a different type of war where it's your cavalry that see lots of actual fighting. So they tend to get better. And it's harder to train very good cavalrymen because you've got to be both a soldier and a good rider and keep in formation. You can teach infantry to do basic things fairly easily, and that's more the way they tend to go. And you, you know, you, this is an army that doesn't really want to fight pitch battles. It would much prefer to defeat the enemy by raiding and by starving them rather than pitch battles are always risky because it doesn't have the depth of manpower in the old days, if you lost a couple of legions, the odds are you could recover, you could recruit more. By the Byzantine period, that's less and less true. It's much harder. And if you lose lots of these very highly trained cavalrymen, it takes a very long time to replace them. And of course, in ancient battles, it's not just about the training and the skill, it's that confidence, because you're coming down in the end to hand-to-hand -hand fighting. If you, if you believe you're going to win, there's more chance it'll happen. And once you start getting used to being defeated, getting that confidence back becomes harder. So you tend to have cycles where, say, the Persians are dominant for a while, then the Romans are dominant in those campaigns because you've, you've won a few engagements and then it's hard to get back and recover. Eventually somebody does and you win and then you start to be on a roll. So you know, it, it, there are all these other elements as well within it. So what about discipline in the army? I know it's very, I know it's very strict disciplinary if you desert or if you just in general. So what I remember, they was stricter, then a little more loose, and then they bring back some of the hard discipline. So Johnny, tell tell me a little bit about the discipline in the Roman army. It's one of those things that is is a striking difference again, even back in the old days of the you know the farmer soldiers being called up and going out and serving out a republic. As a citizen, a free citizen in the Roman Republic, you had immense rights. You know, you couldn't be subject to punishment without trial by a magistrate. You weren't subject to some of the most um, unpleasant punishments like crucifixion, like flogging. In the army, on the other hand, you basically signed away all those rights for the duration. You swore an oath to the commander who could have you executed, you know, who could on his whim, he didn't have to put you on trial. Sorry, excuse me a moment, a cat visiting. <laughs> <laughs> you so you had to but that discipline stays there and if anything becomes more pronounced in in the, the professional army and you have you know famously there's decimation this punishment when a unit fails in combat you choose one man in ten and beat him to death the others beat him to death and then the others are forced to camp outside the rampart they're fed on barley instead of wheat all this symbolic humiliation until they can restore their honor so, you know, punishments can be extremely brutal. However, we probably should be a little careful and not accept everything that's written as entirely, this is what always happened. So for instance, we get a mention of, there's a general called Corbulo, who's one of Nero's best commanders, who has a reputation of being very strict. You know, he's an old fashioned, very firm, very harsh commander. It's noted that he actually executes some men who've deserted for the first time, 
which rather implies that in normal circumstances, you could desert a couple of times before the army said, okay, look, you've had enough of this and would actually execute. Even though officially you desert once, punishment is death. Probably in practice, you're thinking, well, actually, if we can get this man back, you know, give him, punish him a bit, he's a useful soldier. We've put a lot of resources into training him. And in some ways, you know, it might be more of an incentive. It, it's, there are interesting parallels if you look at the British Army in the 18th, 19th century, where men could be flogged, um, hanged. But actually, although many of these punishments were declared, then the general would say, as long as you behave well for the next year or two and your regiment fights well, we won't actually do it. So I suspect the Romans, that there seem to be some generals have a reputation for old-fashioned strictness, but there aren't many cases that we can definitely identify historically of units being decimated. And it is one of those grand gestures that Mark Antony will do, Augustus will do, a few others, Crassus will do it with the legions that have fled from Spartacus' slave army. Why about Sulla? Yeah, um, but it's rare and it's, it's so horrific. And in the end, you know, you really don't want to kill 10% of your own soldiers. Because, of course not. You know, that, that's doing the What, are, what army do you have to fight for them? Exactly. So it's, it's very much a case of there are these very, very strict punishments that are available but they probably don't happen as often as all that. And you're also alongside this, you know, this punishment, there's a lot of reward. So you have an emphasis on decorations, on promotion if you're, you're fit for it. But, you know, this is an army, if you look at particularly centurions, sometimes on their tombstones, you'll see this great array of talks of phalari of these, you know, decorations that they would wear on public occasions. It was noted even the Republican army that whenever there was a festival, you could wear any medals you'd won in the army and show off to your fellow citizens. And th there's an interesting case where um, in the civil war against Caesar, one of his opponents um, rewards a former slave who's serving as auxiliary cavalryman with money. And the man complains and said, actually, I'd prefer to have a medal. You know, there's this status element, there's this, this culture. And, there is a great emphasis on parading men at the end of a campaign, on doling out medals, on having a big feast to sacrifice, and everyone is held up very publicly. You know, you are a brave soldier, you are a, a, um, a great leader, and everyone rewards you. There's even a case, there's an interesting tombstone where one man says he's elected centurion on the vote of, for his courage, on the vote of his comrades. And this is still in the early imperial period. It looks as if there's basically a reward, the legion's done well, so someone comes along, the emperor says, right, okay, you can choose one of your own men to be promoted. Um, so they, they are very good at um, persuading, in the same way, you know, they share loot from campaign, they share the profits, not as much, not as big a share as the senior officers, but they do well out of this. So it's, it's an odd mixture on the, the one level, if you look at the pay of an ordinary soldier under the, the principate in the first, second century AD, it's probably not that much better. In fact, in many ways, it might be slightly worse than a, a farm laborer. Mm. But you get it all the year round. You get good medical care, you get fed, you get clothed, you get things deducted from your pay for all of this. So and you get prestige. So it's a it's a mixture. It's a much safer option. It's again, it's rarely going to attract the very well off to join in the ranks. But nevertheless, um, and you know, there are the only people, the only criminals who are banned from serving in the army are those who've been condemned to be thrown to the wild beasts in the arena or condemned to exile to an island. Now, those are pretty extreme punishments. So yeah. it's a, it makes you suggest there are a lot of petty criminals where you know the local magistrate might say, look, you can go to hard labor in the mines or how about the army? Here's an interesting career choice for you. Yeah. So, you know, it's a mixed bag. So I, I want to go a little bit back now because you mentioned that if you wanted to become a centurion, you can buy yourself into becoming a centurion. But how good were these centurions that just brought themselves in? Was, was it always a good idea? Did it, did it lead to death sometimes that because of inexperience, it just be that way? It's very hard to know. Again, for much of the first, second centuries AD, in many provinces, there is very little fighting. 
And the Roman army does lots of things apart from wage war. You know, it builds a lot of things. They end up acting as escorts, as policemen, as administrators. And you have, particularly in the Western provinces of the empire, where you don't have, a, you know, if you come to Britain, say, you can't, from the local population, find lots of people able to read and write, to be your scribes, to help administer the laws that you've just imposed. So the governor of Britain will have three or 400 soldiers detached from their units as clerks, as bureaucrats in Londinium, in what's effectively the capital of the province. And there's a fort specially built for them. Um, so the army's doing lots of other things. And it's quite clear that if you're well-connected, you've got a better chance of getting posted to one of these jobs rather than necessarily doing the dirty work of fighting. So the, the centurions weren't necessarily in the battlefield? Or well, otherwise. some of them were. They do have to lead from the front. And if you look at battles where we have casualty figures for centurions, particularly if things go wrong, but also even in victories, you're far more likely to get killed as a centurion than you are as an ordinary soldier. You know, they had to go first. They had to lead from the front. That's goes with the job. Now, bravery is something that you don't necessarily need experience for. And in some respects, if you're not aware of the dangers, then you might be a little bolder than you would be otherwise. Hmm. And if a lot of these centurions have come from gentlemen farmers of the, the smaller towns, this sort of thing, they've grown up with a household. They've grown up giving orders to slaves, to other people around them. They've grown up being one of the most important people in this local community. So there's a habit, there's a, a self-confidence of command. We have to remember again that training our officers formally is quite a modern thing. You know, it's really only been going on for the last century and a half or so. Before that, people tended to rely overwhelmingly on the idea that you, you were sort of born to it and then you'd pick it up by watching more experienced people. Mm. Um, so we, ex we sometimes expect everything to be professional in a way that is not typical of much of history. Um, certainly some of the technical jobs, like you know, centurions are often the people who are designing the siege works, who are laying out building projects like roads. That sort of skill you have to learn by somebody teaching you and by experience. So you can't just be given a commission and told you can do this. The youngest centurion attested is only 18. Mm. Um, but again, 18-year-olds often are a little bit braver than somebody 10 years older because they don't know yeah. bad things can happen to them yet. Exactly, so yeah. It, it's, a, it's a mixture. Um, I suspect what you have is, is a proportion, a minority of people who've come up the hard way through the ranks and proved themselves. Though again... Some legions don't fight anybody for generations. And even if you're in a, you know, the army is heavily involved in your province, your bit of it might be posted doing something else. You know, you might be escorting convoys of supplies going up to the main army. You might be building a fort. You might happen to be in the one area where nothing happens, even in a battle. Um, you know, I always remember one of my tutors at Oxford, his brother, older brother, had been a professional soldier in the British army, joined in the late 1930s was desperate to see action in the, the Second World War, but the only time he heard a shot fired in anger was actually, I think, in Syria against the Vichy French. And he volunteered for everything. He volunteered for airborne, all this sort of thing. His glider crashed in the, the North Sea on the way to Arnhem. You know, he never saw it. He was an ambitious career soldier, and you've got one of the biggest conflicts in history going on, and yet you can go through all of this despite wanting to be involved, and it just doesn't happen. So, yeah. whereas other people, there's an interesting comment by, it's not by Julius Caesar, but one of his officers who talks about the very last campaign in 51 BC of the, the Gallic Wars, and you've had 10 years of fighting. And he talks about veteran legions, and then some other very promising units who have served seven or eight years, but haven't quite achieved the reputation and skill of the true vet. Now, this is seven or eight years in some of the most intensive, vicious fighting we know about in the ancient world, and yet they're still not seen as quite at their peak mm. militarily. So there's a lot of, of learning by experience, and because ancient battles are, they're, they're most dangerous if you lose. You know, the victors often suffer relatively low casualties. That you can see quite a lot of combat, and unless you actually lose, you're still around 
at the end of it. And you, you don't have, it's not quite like, you know, medieval knights who by the sort of 14th, 15th century are so well protected if they're wealthy, that they stand, and they'll probably get ransomed if they get captured. They stand actually a very slim chance of being killed in these battles. It's relatively low risk. Hence the fact some of them can go fighting for decades and they don't burn out in the way that, you know, in more modern conflicts, there seems to be a limit to how long people can fight before the vast majority start to break down and no longer become as brave, no longer become as bold. Um, you don't really come across that in the ancient world. There's a sense that nobody fights for so long that they can't quite cope in the same way. So um, that might be because we don't have the sources to tell us about it. Was it common that a soldier who's been in the battlefield would get PTSD, or was this not a rarity in the ancient ancient world? It's very hard to tell. I mean, there have been some interesting ideas where people have gone often looking at Homer's Iliad and have tried to see it within that. And it sort of started with in America with several Vietnam veterans who were sort of seeing parallels. Um, there are hints of it. Um, you get the impression that Caesar by the end really didn't want to fight anymore. Um, there's a, an anecdote about Marius during an illness, admittedly, but just in the last years of his life, hallucinating that he's fighting a battle. You're referring and to Marius Crassus, I yeah. assume. Yeah. Well, he's, he's yelling out commands. He's, he's going into fighting postures. You know, he's, he's going through almost this sort of a nightmare of being in a battle. Um, Mark Antony quite possibly is suffering from something like that after his Parthian expedition to Armenia has failed so badly. You know, he never seems quite as confident afterwards. And you, but it's, it's, it's hard to tell because it, in the same way that people wouldn't have appreciated this a century ago, you know, it was only really with the First World War they started to appreciate the idea of shell shock and then, then how you, this might be treated and that people could simply break down mentally. Mm. It's, it's clearly been happening before, but do people understand it? Do they see it as that or as something else? So I suspect it is happening. And in these intensive periods of combat, you, you know, you have to feel some of these people probably saw too much. And modern studies would suggest as well that it varies from individual to individual. Some people will go into this level of collapse much sooner. And it might be because of underlying problems, or it might simply be the conditions. What happened to them is so particularly traumatic that didn't happen to someone who was standing 100 feet away. You know, it's, um, I think we're still struggling to understand fully all of this. So my suspicion is it's there, but perhaps, perhaps less because the culture is different, but also the type of combat is different. But again, I'd, I'd be surprised. I personally don't think human beings have changed that much in thousands of years. I think basic human nature and biology is the same. Societies will influence and cultures how you think about things, how you react to things. But deep down, people behave in much the same way as they've always done. Um, I think if that wasn't true, then we couldn't really understand history at all because everything would be so alien to us that we couldn't really associate with them. So. <laughs> a long-winded answer but I think yes it's there but the sort of sources we don't have any account of an ancient battle written by an ordinary soldier you know there's a letter from Egypt where that sort of is fragmentary that hints at it there's another that talks about somebody who's in hospital in a the legionary base because he's been hit on the head in a riot but we while we have a few accounts from senior people we don't have that level of detail that would allow you to get a sense of, the, of, of this, of what it was really like, how how the ordinary legionary felt and thought. So I, I remember watching a documentary, don't quote me on this, but I'm pretty sure it was by Mary Bird, and she mentioned that the Roman, so I think it was during Caesar's battle in Gaul, that they used these more like fishing rods placed in the ground to, for the soldiers, for the enemy to stamp on and get their feet broken and stuck there. Is, was the, did they do this or was this, was this common practice back then? If you've got the time, I mean, it's a sort of fort, sort of defenses you put in front of, of fortifications. So in Caesar's case, the main example of this is Elysia, which is a siege as much as a battle where he's surrounded Vercingetorix and the Gallic army with one line of fortifications facing inwards. And then when a whole confederation of tribes comes up to rescue Vercingetorix, Caesar builds this second line of fortifications facing outwards and his army's in the middle. Yeah. And they've got caltrops, you know, these little spiky bits of metal yeah. that 
always fall with a spike facing up. You've got other spikes that are hammered into stakes that are then driven into the ground. You've got the lilies, the lilia, these concealed pits again with a, a sharpened stake. And we can see this in some more permanent bases wherever there's a sense that there might be a problem. And interestingly, um, we've already we've known about it for a long time with some of the forts of the Antonine Wall in northern Britain, but more modern excavation of Hadrian's Wall, particularly in the areas where it had been built over by the modern city of Newcastle, have preserved clear examples of a thick barrier between the ditch in front of the wall and the wall itself was this almost hedge of spikes, of stakes, of obstacles. Now, some of these things, yes, they're going to do you, you know, mischief if you tread on them. The main thing is it isn't going to kill or even incapacitate the enemy, but once they realize it's there, what was a rushing charge and a steady advance becomes much more careful. It's more, what's more a mental thing? It is, it, it's, it's, it's momentum and it's also psychological. You start, you're looking where you're treading. You're being careful. And so you're not hitting the Roman defenses in a rush. You're coming in more slowly. And while you're coming in more slowly, the people up on the rampart and in the towers are throwing missiles down at you. They're shooting light artillery at you if they've got archers. You know, so you're more vulnerable. It takes the, uh, the momentum, the force out of a charge as much as it actually kills people. It's a little bit like barbed wire. It doesn't defeat yeah. the enemy on its own, but it makes their life a lot more difficult. Yeah. And of course, we had to talk about Pompey a little bit different. But so what, what made him such a great general? What made him so, so loved by the Roman people? I mean, the, the sort of the glib, the simple answer is to say, well, one of the reasons we think of him this way is that we only really know about his campaigns from his own version of them. Um, and a lot of commanders in history, you know, would be celebrated far more if we only had their account of all their battles and how every mistake that happened was somebody else's fault and everything brilliant happened. Caesar is a lot more subtle than that. I mean, his, his accounts are deceptively modest in that he doesn't, we know there were traditions and stories circulated about Pompey leading cavalry charges, striking down enemies with the spear or sword in hand. Nothing like that exists for Caesar. He never implies he's doing it, or at least he never tells you he's doing that sort of stuff. He can leave it to your imagination. But Caesar had charm, charisma, that is, is obvious from his political career as well. And his, his, you know, he, could, he could win people over. He could win over a crowd in the forum. He could win over a group of soldiers. And it's, sometimes it's easy to forget that until he goes off to Spain in the late 60s BC, he has very little military experience. You know, he's, he has won a, an award for gallantry uh, in his late teens, early 20s in Bithynia, but he wasn't involved in a major campaign out there. He's been involved in a few minor things. He probably served against Spartacus as a tribune, but he's not, compared to Pompey, say, he hasn't spent a lot of his life on campaign. And he right. seems to do very well in, in Spain. And then when he arrives in Gaul, in his first year, he faces a mutiny when some of his legions don't want to advance, but he manages, you know, he says, well, if you're not coming, I'm going to advance tomorrow morning with the 10th legion anyway. And the 10th think, wow, isn't it great? He knows we're the best legion around. And everybody else says, well, we're not going to let the 10th do better than us or show off to us. So um, he has that, you know, it's, it's the Romans liked, Roman commanders like to make their units compete, like to, but he's, he's good at working pride and reputation. He's very generous and rewarding people, but he does, on the whole, he seems to know the right thing to do. You know, he does have that natural talent that is born in very few, but is, is clearly there. There's obviously study and thought behind it as well, but um, it's that combination of all these things. And he makes mistakes, but he learns from them. And he is very good at getting himself out of tough situations that sometimes he's created. In many respects, he's quintessential, you know, a typical Roman commander. He's very aggressive and the Romans were very aggressive. You know, you dominate the enemy, you seize the initiative, you keep on attacking. You don't necessarily fight battles, but you always fight in the situation of your choosing in the way that is most suitable, most favorable to you at that time. So there is this combination of great leadership. You know, he is inspirational. You have, um, it becomes almost you know, very strange in the Civil War when you have the mutiny of the 10th, for instance, that you know, he'll come and yeah. just sort of throw. And instead of 
you normally think, you know, you try and placate them. You try and say, okay, look, you know, I'll, I'll be nice to you. Instead, it's brilliant how it took much to tenth the round and yeah, fight for him again. Oh yeah, and instead of comilitones, comrades, what he's always calls them before, it's quirites, citizens, civilians. Mm. And look, I don't need you. You know, I, it's it's the reverse of what he said in Gaul, where I'll go on with just the tenth if I have to. I don't need the rest of you. To mm. saying, look, I don't need you anymore, and that's it's working their pride. You know, when you get a, these these veteran soldiers are begging him to decimate them. Mm. You know, it's, it's, this yeah. is, there are these people in history who have this sort of charisma that can get away with things that the rest of us just couldn't, you know, and, and it's, and yes. Who says for the Earth's time doesn't work? Well, exactly, but it, it doesn't work for everybody. Mm. You know, there, there's a sense you have, you can tell from Cicero's letters that early in the Civil War, Pompey's allies don't trust Pompey to meet Caesar face to face because they're just worried he's going to get charmed. And I've heard people say, you know, you, you can look at, it's, it's clearly there with Napoleon. He could mesmerize people in a way that if you look at his paintings, you're thinking, you know, I can't see this. But, um, you know, I've heard people say much the same about um, former American pre president, Bill Clinton, that even if you disagreed utterly with him, you would go into a room and you'd come out having signed a check for his campaign and agreeing with him. And you couldn't understand why, but there was something magnetic. And again, didn't come across on TV as far as I could see. Um, and I've heard that from several, and there are other people who come, you know, politicians that come across appallingly badly on television and in the media, but you meet people who've actually met them face to face, and even if they don't agree with them or like them, this is actually, this, it was very hard to resist this man or this woman. There was just some charm of it, some magnetism about them. These things are, are very hard to explain, um, because it, it does seem to be one of those flukes that you seem to be born with it. Um, I suppose it's like the movie star. You know, there are some mm. people, they might not be a better actor or actress than all the others, but we want to watch them. Yeah. You know, you, you're just drawn to them on the screen for some reason. So, of course, we, you mentioned the tent, and we can't talk about the Roman army without talking about the tent. So what was it about the tent legion that made them so, so popular, so famous? It, it's again very much they get a prominent place in Caesar's campaigns and it, it's you know traditionally every at the start of every year the legions of the Roman army were renumbered and it start it's stopping they're starting to keep their numbers in Caesar's day but even so it's very significant Caesar always avoided numbers one to four because traditionally the consuls of the year would have one would get legion one and legion three and the other would get legion two and legion four and there was prestige associated with those numbers. So Caesar avoids those numbers, which means he can, his units can keep their number. They don't have to change it each year. But bear in mind, the 10th Legion, as far as we know, has never met Julius Caesar before he arrives to take charge in Gaul. You know, they're not raised by him. Um, we don't know who raised them. It's presumably one of his predecessors in northern Italy, in the Gallic province, which means at the start, he hasn't chosen all their officers. He hasn't chosen all their men. They're taking an oath of allegiance to him. So you can see there's a sort of getting to know each other process when Caesar's campaign start in Gaul, like the incident I mentioned where um, he says, well, I'll go on with just the, the 10th Legion. We'll, we'll do this ourselves if the rest of you aren't coming. He's started to take position. He started to put the 10th in the place of honor on the right of the line in most situations. And he takes his own position there as well. And that starts, but again, his first battle against the Helvetii, Caesar makes the grand gesture of sending his horse away before the battle starts. So he mm. can't run away any faster than any man on foot. It's basically saying, look, I'm committed. I'm going to stay with you. He never does that again, as far as we can tell. And it's, it's in many respects, a bad idea for a commander because it means you're lower down, you can't see as much and you certainly can't move around as much to the crisis points, but it's proving to his men, you can trust me. And then as yeah. you get victory after victory, the whole army, but particularly the 10th, that is favored, is pampered, its centurions are promoted to higher grades and then posted to other legions to help the recruits. So it spreads throughout the army. It's a bit like Napoleon with the Imperial Guard. You know, you'd get commissioned out and you'd go off to line units and then you'd come back. And it was this sort right. of much greater status much greater prestige. And he, he's writing about them in these commentaries on the campaigns that are being sent back to be read out aloud 
to people back home. So that again and again, far more often than any other legion, the 10th appears doing something heroic or centurions from the 10th doing something heroic. Even the Aquilifer, the eagle bearer of the 10th, who in the first attempt to land in Britain, when the men are hesitating, they don't want to get off the ships. This man jumps over the side and says, you know, follow me or lose your eagle. Interesting enough, Caesar doesn't mention his name. You know, you have to wonder, was this one of those soldiers who was very, very good in battle, but a nuisance to everybody outside it? Or he's certainly not politically connected well enough to make it worth naming him. You know, I'm sure Caesar knew who he was, but it's that reward. But it means that famous incident, the 10th leads the way, the Aquilifer, the Eagle of the 10th leads the way. So they become so important and they will remain important when in after Caesar's murder, you're going to the veteran colonies and Mark Antony's doing it, Augustus as he'll become is doing it. You're raising from the veterans, the 10th still matters. It doesn't really last much beyond that. It is not, it doesn't become a better legion than any other in the armies of the, the imperial period although it might well be that anyone who belonged to the 10th believed that they, they were a better legion than everybody else. You know, it, it's, it's, so it's, it's a relatively brief period, but it's when they do so much and Caesar promotes them and it's in his interest to make them special. And it's one of those things, you know, it, it's, it's like a famous sports team. You know, they, the reputation grows so much that you advertise them and it, it's sort of self-fulfilling. People, they believe themselves to be special, so they do better. So my last question, I suppose, is what is your view of the Roman army after having studied them for so long and what do you think personally about them? It's, it's a fascinating organization. And, and as I say, it's something that changes so much because Rome is around for a very long time, you know. It, we sort of tell people Britain is one of the last provinces the Romans ever add to their empire and the Romans are here for more than 360 years you know so it's we we struggle to deal with these sort of lengths of time and the army is always there and the army changes and the army is a very good way of understanding Roman society it, it's one of those things where sometimes in modern scholarship there's been a trend to see the ancient world as very primitive the Greeks and Romans you know the the old fashioned view was that the Romans are very modern, they're much like mm. us. And then there's been a backlash, oh no, you know, that's very, and that's often been taken to an extreme where their economy, their whole society, their technology is all very primitive. It partly is one of the problems is that medieval historians have been going on for decades about how wonderful the Middle Ages are. And they keep saying, well, they invent, you know, um, windmills and all this sort of thing and do um, Greek fire. Yeah, um, but. In part, we know about these things because um, you have illuminated manuscripts and more yeah. has been preserved. Whereas it's only been a fairly recent discovery that we now know that Romans, the Romans built carts and carriages with su suspension systems that were every bit as sophisticated as anything in the 18th century. And yet until a few decades ago, it was just thought they had these simple axles, no suspension at all, just bumped along the roads, no matter how rich you were it's because you can't see it on the sculptures. You know, it's taken the archeology span actually finding examples and thinking, wow, that really works. Mm. Um, we tend, so the Roman army is one of the biggest arguments against this primitive world, because yes, it isn't quite like a modern army and it doesn't have mass produced things in the same way that you know, a Roman sword is an individually produced item. It's nearly the same as a lot of others, but it isn't 100% identical in the way that you go and get a rifle produced by a factory, it's going to be the same, pretty much. Um, but the Roman army has this very sophisticated bureaucracy. You know, when you join the army, your progress is tracked all the way through by records that are written down and that are accessible to the point where you leave the army either because you've deserted or you're dead or you're honorably or discharged or dishonorably discharged. The same's even true for a mule or a horse that comes into the army because it, you know, it is, it is tracked and the army can post, you see centurions who will serve in 10, 12, even more legions in the course of their career dotted all the way around the empire. Now we don't know how that system was organized but clearly you could see, right, 
there's a vacancy in a legion in Syria. I'm in Northern Britain. I'm getting posted over there. And the state keeps track of it. It, do, it doesn't allow just anybody to become, they, there's a limited number of commissions. You don't exceed that because there are lots of rights. There's lots of pay. There's all sorts of status things that go with it. We almost see the sort of, it's like a shadow cast by something that was this, how this was all organized. And it was clearly organized centrally because you don't, with all of the problems the Romans have with civil wars, emperors are very, very careful about loyalty of their soldiers. They don't want anybody else going off, giving out promotions to the influential men in a legion. So it's all controlled, it's all carefully watched. Most of, we only see hints of the evidence, we see hints of the bureaucracy. So it, it's, there are, there's much that is ancient, that was peculiar, that was unique to Roman society about the Roman army, and that's interesting, but there's also a lot that's very different and, and very unusual. So it's it's one of those things I've been, you know, I've been lucky enough to be able to study it full time for since I went to university pretty much since I, I did my doctorate. And it still surprises me and it's still throwing up interesting questions, problems, new evidence turns up archaeologically and we try and mm. work that out. Whether it's, you know, you have this big monument, Hadrian's Wall in Northern Britain, and we don't really know what it was for or how it worked. So looking at the evidence and trying to guess and try and to see how did this function? Why did they bother to spend all these resources and keep it in service for so long? There's so many different aspects that it, it, it as I say, it still fascinates me. I just, uh, you know, we'll yeah. I think go, go on. I'll still be puzzled. I'll be confused by aspects of it. There'll be lots of things I'd love to know. We probably never will know because the evidence isn't there, but it's good to keep asking questions. So do you, before you go, do you have any social media where people can find you or do you, anything you wish to promote? Um, I've, I've got my website, adriangoldsworthy.com. I'm, I'm, I'm too old to, to cope with social media. I just don't get, mm. I, I don't really do that. I've got, um, at the moment, the next book to come out is, is a paperback of, not Roman, it's actually a biography of Philip and Alexander the Great. Um, I'm currently writing a book that will trace Roman relations, particularly militarily, between the Romans and first of all Parthia and then Persia from the first contact with Sulla right the way through to the collapse of Sassanid Persia in the seventh century AD. So I'm that that won't be finished until next year sometime and it'll be out probably 2022, I would guess, or 23. Um, so other than that, all I've got, I've got a novel um, set in the Roman period coming out in the next month in June. So that's that's where I get to play around with some of the ideas, the thoughts I've had about the army, putting it into a story. But that's 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 meant as an adventure story. It's not sort of um, Fact, factual. Not, it's not factual. It's not. It's fiction. It's not nonfiction. So. Thank you so much for coming. It's been a pleasure to have you on. And uh, you can find us on Instagram under world.h12. You can listen to us on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, wherever you can find us. We also have a podcast on an app called Stereo, where we interview all sorts of people. My name is Alan. Next week, we will have Catherine Lomas on this podcast to talk about Hannibal, the Battle of Kenya. So I'm looking forward to that. That'll be good. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming. This has been Modate 12. I'll see you next week. Goodbye. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.